0: The new season of Famous Fates, titled Falls from Grace, is here. Every Wednesday, we feature two new episodes that focus on a different scandalous figure from history. If you enjoy the episode we're sharing here today, head over to the Famous Fates feed and give a follow. These episodes are all free and only available on Spotify. It is often referred to as Hollywood's first scandal. At the center of it, Roscoe Fatty R. Buckle, a world-famous star whose association with sexual assault and murder would send shockwaves through Tinseltown. His story is coming up. If you'd like to hear today's other episode on the meteoric fall of film actress Barbara Payton, head over to the Famous Fates feed on Spotify and subscribe today. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault, medical trauma, violence against women, and sex work. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: Sometimes it is expedient that one man should be sacrificed for his group. Arbuckle was a scapegoat, and the only thing to do with the scapegoat, if you must have one, is to chase him off into the wilderness and never let him come back.
0: Cruel words from the New York Times editorial board, circa December of 1922. But they reflected the opinion of the country at the time. The former darling of the movie business was simply too tarnished to ever be allowed to act again.
1: If Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle read the article, he did so from the shadows of his tiny Hollywood bungalow, There, he spent his days drinking heavily and mourning, amongst other things, his lost career and his million-dollar salary.
0: He truly had been driven into the wilderness for a horrific sexual assault and murder he didn't commit. The crime never happened. A jury of his peers declared him, quote, "...entirely innocent and free from all blame." Yet, he was now serving a life sentence of professional exile.
1: Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson.
0: And I'm Carter Roy.
1: And this is season two of Famous Fates Falls from Grace. This season, we're examining once-revered historical figures whose stories ended in less than savory ways. Every week, we're bringing you two episodes examining the lives of two fascinating people in the same industry.
0: They were beloved for their incredible accomplishments until they were reviled for their sins.
1: This week, we're covering actors who dazzled on the silver screen until their personal lives became Greek tragedies. In this episode, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, the silent film era's favorite funny man, until charges of sexual assault and manslaughter left him blacklisted and destitute, despite his acquittal.
0: The format of old silent films wasn't complicated. Actors emoted without words, accompanied by live music played in the theater. When narration was necessary, it appeared between scenes on slides called intertitles.
1: Flawless comedic timing was absolutely essential. So was the ability to convey grief, joy, or romantic love through the eyes alone. And if an actor wanted to make the audience laugh, he'd better be prepared to slip and fall on cue or take a pie to the face.
0: Those who excelled at this art were rewarded with fame and fortune, not to mention the love of their adoring fans. And aside from Charlie Chaplin, in September of 1921, the public loved no actor more than 34-year-old Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle.
1: From his Paramount contract... Arbuckle earned a cool million bucks per year, or about $13 million today. He drove a $34,000 custom Pierce Arrow convertible, and he lived in a 20-room mansion.
0: He was box office gold. A variety magazine couldn't contain its enthusiasm for his latest picture, Crazy to Marry. Their critic wrote... Tuesday at the Rialto Theater, the laughter was so loud as to give the impression the auditorium was being cannonaded.
1: The key to Arbuckle's comedic genius was his willingness to transgress social norms, starting with his appearance. He weighed 275 pounds, a size so unusual in cinema that for the first few years of his career, he received fan mail addressed to That Fat Boy.
0: A less clever actor might have leaned on cheap pantomimes, like getting stuck in narrow doorways or overeating on screen. Arbuckle refused to do either. Instead, he used his size and his nickname, Fatty, to play a wider variety of roles than thin men could. He routinely cross-dressed for his films, often portraying a portly matron, essentially a white jazz-age version of Tyler Perry's Medea. Prohibition-era morality normally considered cross-dressing perverse, but Arbuckle got away with it on the grounds of his size. The public saw his heaviness as immature and asexual. Therefore, he could wear dresses and be called playful, not kinky.
1: Not only could he play both men and women, Arbuckle sometimes acted like a baby, literally. In several of his films, he played a comedic persona he called Baby Fatty
0: this broad range made him prolific between 1908 and 1921 he was cast in more than 150 films however he was always careful to separate his on-screen persona from his private life arbuckle made it clear to his friends and to interviewers that fatty was just the character he played in movies off screen he insisted on being addressed by his first name roscoe And even when he used his heft for laughs, his intention was always to represent and celebrate people of size rather than denigrate them.
1: The September 1921 issue of Photo Play magazine featured an exclusive interview with Arbuckle entitled Love Confessions of a Fat Man. In the article, he quipped, The fat man as lover is going to be the best seller on the market for the next few years.
0: Perhaps Arbuckle's fame fueled his urge to flout the rules, specifically the 18th Amendment. That's the one ratified in 1919, prohibiting the sale or possession of alcohol in the United States. But prohibition wasn't even an inconvenience to someone as wealthy as Arbuckle. He quite enjoyed it.
1: As long as alcohol remained illegal, access to liquor was a powerful social currency— Moonshine became a way for rich men like Arbuckle to flaunt their status, impress women, and attract guests to their parties.
0: Drinking was one of Arbuckle's favorite hobbies, especially in groups. That's why on September 3, 1921, he ditched work for play. He was supposed to appear in a Labor Day parade promoting Paramount Pictures on September 5th, driving the Pierce Arrow... They'd advertised his involvement heavily.
1: But Arbuckle was in no mood to engage his fans. A few days earlier, he'd suffered chemical burns to his buttocks after accidentally sitting on an acid-soaked rag while having his car serviced.
0: The embarrassing injury forced Arbuckle to sit on a donut-shaped padded rubber ring so he wasn't in parading spirits. And besides, one of Arbuckle's many friends, 27-year-old small-time director Fred Fishback, had a gin party planned in San Francisco, with rooms, guests, and liquor already secured. All Arbuckle had to do to have a good time was get himself and Fred there.
1: So on Saturday morning, Arbuckle blew off the Paramount Parade in favor of the open road. In addition to fishback, along for the ride was Lowell Sherman, a 32-year-old actor who specialized in playing villains and bad boy types. Noticeably absent was Arbuckle's wife, Minta Durfee. They were living out a trial separation, and Arbuckle was happy to go party without her. That night, when the Pierce Arrow finally roared into San Francisco, Arbuckle, seated on his rubber donut, steered it to the opulent St. Francis Hotel in Union Square, which featured a basement speakeasy.
0: Arbuckle and his friends rented rooms 1219, 1220, and 1221. Connecting doors turned the trio of rooms into a shared suite with two bathrooms. Shortly after their check-in, A delivery of bootleg gin and scotch arrived.
1: The next day, Sunday, the men stayed up late to catch the cabaret show at a nearby high-end café. Sherman flirted with the chorus girls, inviting two of them to come party with the trio the next day.
0: Arbuckle went to bed after the show and slept late the next morning. Meanwhile, his friends met several people in the hotel's common areas and invited them up to their rooms. By the time Arbuckle woke up, around 11 a.m., the gin and scotch bottles were open and the guests were asking for music.
1: Still bleary-eyed and dressed in pajama bottoms and slippers, Arbuckle called the hotel staff and asked them to bring up a Victrola record player.
0: When he dropped an original Dixieland jazz band record on the turntable, Arbuckle had no idea he was choosing the soundtrack, for the last day of his life as a movie star.
1: That's coming up next.
0: Now, back to the story.
1: On September 5th, 1921, 34-year-old silent film legend Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle and his friends, 27-year-old director Fred Fishback and 32-year-old actor Lowell Sherman, threw a Labor Day gin party in San Francisco. Though liquor was illegal, the St. Francis Hotel was known to look the other way.
0: Even so, Arbuckle was concerned when he woke up to find 38-year-old Maud Delmont and 30-year-old Virginia Rappé in one of his three adjacent hotel rooms. Rappé was a recognizable beauty who had been featured in fashion magazines. Delmont, on the other hand, had a seedy reputation. Rumor had it she worked as a madam and was juggling two husbands. Arbuckle worried their notability would draw undue attention to what he intended as a private party.
1: Virginia Rappé was not only beautiful, but creative and adventurous. For years, she'd been a notable advocate for female independence, and had even publicized her signing of an anti-marriage pact with two other women when she was a young model.
0: By the time she walked into Arbuckle's hotel room on Labor Day, though, Virginia Rappé was feeling lost. She'd recently split from her director boyfriend, Henry Lehrman, who had cast her in four of his films. Now, she was afraid she'd lost the best thing going for her acting career.
1: Rappé was excited to meet Arbuckle, hoping to glean a few tips for landing more roles. She stayed close to him throughout the party, flattering him by drinking several of his favorite cocktails, Orange Blossoms
0: arbuckle never did get dressed opting to stay clad in pajama bottoms perhaps to make the hosts feel less awkward some of the guests changed into pajamas too Maud delmont borrowed a pair from lowell sherman with whom she was flirting despite possibly being already married to two men
1: in the early afternoon fred fishback departed in arbuckle's car to look at seals on the beach Arbuckle took the opportunity to throw out one of Fishback's friends, an uncouth dress salesman. It was then a party of six, Arbuckle and Sherman, cheerfully drinking with Delmont, Rapet, and the chorus girls.
0: Arbuckle was happy to laze the day away, dancing the foxtrot with the ladies and cracking jokes. He also took time to have another dozen bottles of booze delivered. His guests were going through the gin in
1: record time. After the dancing, Rappé made her move, cozying up to Arbuckle on the sofa in room 1220, perhaps in search of career advice.
0: Meanwhile, Maud Delmont and Lowell Sherman disappeared from the party. A little while later, Rappé, feeling the effects of her cocktails, tried to enter the bathroom in room 1221, only to find the door locked. When she knocked, both Delmont and Sherman shouted back that the bathroom was occupied.
1: So Rapay went the other direction, to the bathroom in room 1219. Then, shortly after 3 p.m., Arbuckle got up from the sofa and followed her, closing the adjoining door behind him. Maybe he thought Rappé was spending such a long time in the restroom as a signal that she'd like him to join her, Or maybe he was worried and wanted to check on his guest. Perhaps Arbuckle simply needed to use the bathroom.
0: Whatever the reason, when he closed that adjoining door, Arbuckle unknowingly put himself in mortal peril. Once he and Rapay were alone in room 1219, nobody but the two of them could say for certain what transpired there, and only one of them would live to tell the tale.
1: We'll probably never know if Arbuckle and Rapay had sex, consensual or not, during their brief time alone together. The only thing that is certain is that at some point after Arbuckle went into room 1219 with Rapay, she began experiencing severe abdominal pain. Soon she was doubled over, vomiting and screaming for help. In fits of agony, she began tearing off her clothes.
0: Though nobody knew it yet... Her bladder had ruptured, causing acute peritonitis. If not treated immediately, the condition creates life-threatening abdominal inflammation.
1: Clearly, no one within the suite had training in emergency medicine, on top of the fact that they were all quite drunk. According to some accounts, Arbuckle and the others tried to place Repay in a cool bath and rub ice across her abdomen. When her condition failed to improve, eventually a doctor was summoned.
0: After examining Rappé while she howled in pain, the hotel's in-house doctor diagnosed her with alcohol poisoning. It wasn't uncommon for people to suffer severe illness after overconsumption of moonshine. So-called bathtub liquor was very strong and often contaminated.
1: Believing Rapay just needed to rest and detox, the doctor administered morphine and ordered the patient moved to a private room for recuperation.
0: Ma Delmont hovered over Virginia Rappé as the men carried her down the hall to room 1227. The doctor promised to send a second physician in a few hours to re-examine her, but advised that she not be disturbed in the meantime. So, hoping that Repay would recover on her own, the men went back to their party. Arbuckle had no idea that Virginia Rappé was in the process of dying, much less that he'd be blamed for it.
1: By Tuesday morning, September 6th, Repay's condition hadn't improved. The morphine only masked her pain temporarily. Then she went right back to screaming. The second hotel physician stopped by and agreed with the first that repay was suffering from the effects of excessive tippling.
0: Concerned, Maud Delmont insisted on getting a third opinion. This one from a doctor she knew personally, Dr. Melville Rumwell.
1: Maud's dedication might have been born from compassion at first, but she also had a darker motive. When Dr. Rumwell arrived, Delmot told him a sordid story. She claimed that overnight, Ruppé had briefly awakened from her stupor to accuse Arbuckle of sexually assaulting her.
0: Dr. Rumwell's examination didn't support that story. He found no evidence of injury, nor of recent sexual intercourse. Unfortunately, he also didn't find her ruptured bladder and peritonitis. He concurred with the previous physician that her symptoms seemed to be from alcohol poisoning.
1: Initially, it was reasonable for Rapay to be prescribed pain medication and rest. But by this point, the lack of proper medical treatment bordered on malpractice. And this likely had to do with her gender. Even today, studies show that women seeking medical care are about 30% more likely than men to be misdiagnosed. So instead of being moved to a hospital that Tuesday morning, Rappé was left alone in room 1227 and tended to by a bevy of nurses.
0: When Arbuckle called to check on Rappé's recovery that morning, he was told she was suffering from alcohol poisoning but would recover. So, feeling he'd done his due diligence, Arbuckle headed back to L.A. as scheduled. He was eager to resume promoting his newest film, Crazy to Marry.
1: To that end, and perhaps because he was hungover, Arbuckle didn't drive down the coast. Instead, he parked his Pierce Arrow convertible on a passenger steamship, which sailed him back to Los Angeles in time for breakfast the next day. By the time he returned to his mansion, he was in fine spirits and glad he'd made the trip to San Francisco.
0: But back at the St. Francis Hotel, Rapet's condition was worsening. Despite her horrific pain, it took two more days for a doctor to evaluate her again. Meanwhile, the infection from her ruptured bladder had spread through her bloodstream. She needed intensive care. Instead, she got enemas and warm compresses.
1: On Wednesday, September 7th, Maud Delmont stole away from the sick room to send a telegram to two of her friends. It read, we have Roscoe Arbuckle in a hole here, chance to make money out of him.
0: If Delmont had initially been Repay's good Samaritan, by now those priorities had changed. She was plotting a blackmail operation on a grand scale.
1: By Thursday night, when Repay was still critically ill, Dr. Rumwell was summoned again. Finally, he admitted his patient might be in need of more care than a hotel staff could provide. He ordered her transferred to the Wakefield Sanitarium, a maternity hospital close by.
0: The fact that Rappé was taken to a hospital specializing in births would later spark rumors that she was pregnant or that she'd suffered an injury from a botched abortion. In fact, the Wakefield Sanitarium just happened to be the closest place with a fully stocked operating room.
1: But by the time she was admitted to the hospital and thoroughly examined, Repay was too weak to survive surgery. The correct diagnosis of peritonitis was finally made, but it was too late to save her life. Sadly, Repay slipped into a coma the next morning, September 9th, She breathed her last breath around 1.30 p.m. at the age of 30.
0: After a life of resilience, wit, creativity, and activism, she would be remembered mostly for the way she died. And even that story, for a long time, would be based on a lie that degraded her memory. This invented story would serve as ammunition to destroy Roscoe Arbuckle, And usher in an age of Hollywood censorship.
1: That's up next.
0: Now, back to the story.
1: On Friday, September 9, 1921, 30 year old Virginia Rappe died of complications from a ruptured bladder. Two separate autopsies were conducted that day one by the hospital and the other by the local coroner's office. Both agreed that the small hole in her bladder was the cause of her death. However, the coroner's surgeon, Dr. Shelby Strange, came to believe that the rupture itself was caused by some external force, as he put it in his report, and this conclusion would shadow all others.
0: The next day, September 10th, the San Jose Evening News ran the headline, Detain Arbuckle. Fat comedian in trouble as girl dies from orgy. The article, quoting an affidavit from a party guest named Alice Blake, spread like wildfire.
1: This was the tail end of the yellow journalism era, when national networks of papers printed whatever salacious gossip would sell copies. And this story was big enough that newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst ordered all his publications to cover it. Over 20 daily papers.
0: Hearst would later say the Arbuckle story sold more papers than the sinking of the Lusitania.
1: Newspapers were frantic to one-up each other with scandalous coverage. From San Francisco to Los Angeles, all the way across the country to New York and Pittsburgh, Hearst Publications all ran stories about Rapay's death on September 10th. These articles, along with leaked autopsy findings, fueled the rumor mill. Pretty soon, many people falsely believed that Arbuckle had sexually assaulted Ruppé with either a broken bottle or a jagged shard of ice, which punctured her bladder.
0: The alternate speculation was also dour. Some people thought it was more likely that Arbuckle was so heavy, Ruppé's bladder bursts when he laid on top of her.
1: Neither boded well for Arbuckle, who immediately issued a statement, reading, We sat around and had some drinks, and pretty soon Miss Rapay became hysterical and complained she could not breathe and began to tear her clothes off. At no time was I alone with Miss Rapet.
0: This was unconvincing and not entirely true. The two had been alone, albeit not for long. He went on to issue a subsequent statement, claiming there were no locking doors between room 1219 and 1220. Another lie. Backpedaling still, he then claimed repay panicked in front of everyone, which was also false.
1: None of Arbuckle's statements even made a dent in the speculation. Once the story was out, whatever truth it held, it couldn't be silenced.
0: So the same day the story broke, Arbuckle consulted his management and decided to turn himself in. He hired two excellent attorneys to accompany him, Frank Dominguez and Charles Brennan, then made the long drive back to San Francisco. At 8:30 p.m., he entered the San Francisco Hall of Justice to voluntarily submit to questioning.
1: To protect their client, though, the two lawyers mostly muzzled him. He admitted to only the least serious of criminal acts, drinking and buying alcohol. When the district attorneys asked him anything about Rapay, he stayed mum. One of the men present later joked that he wouldn't even admit his name was Roscoe Arbuckle.
0: The investigators began to suspect Arbuckle had made the trip merely to protect his reputation. He wanted fans to see him being a good boy, so they wouldn't boycott his movie.
1: Aggravated, the assistant DAs ordered Arbuckle arrested for murder. Just before midnight on September 10th, he was cuffed, dragged through a gauntlet of reporters, photographed, and booked.
0: What Arbuckle didn't know when he turned himself in was that the assistant DAs had been primed. Maud Delmont had been to the Hall of Justice before him and had given an inflammatory statement.
1: According to Delmont, Arbuckle had seized Rapet and told her, I have been trying to get you for five years. Then he took her into the bedroom, locked the door, and wouldn't let Delmont in. By the time she saw Rapet again, Delmont claimed the younger woman was howling, He did it. I am dying.
0: Delmont also claimed to have seen huge bite marks on Rapay's neck and legs. No such marks were found during the autopsy nor noted by any doctor.
1: Not to mention, Delmont was in room 1221's bathroom with Lowell Sherman when Rapay went into room 1219 with Arbuckle, so she wasn't even in a position to witness the interaction she described between Arbuckle and Rapay.
0: District Attorney Matthew Brady must have noticed some inconsistencies in the story, but he had higher political ambitions. Putting Arbuckle behind bars for a horrific sex crime would make him a household name. So on September 12th, Brady told the public, I will spare no effort to punish the perpetrator of this atrocious crime.
1: As the second most famous man in movies sat in jail awaiting trial, his films were pulled from theaters nationwide. His name was now only seen in headlines rather than on marquees.
0: And there was salacious headlines aplenty. As a grand jury convened on Tuesday, September 13th, the San Francisco Examiner alone printed 17 Arbuckle-related stories.
1: When there weren't any new developments, reporters began making up facts. The actual party had been attended by less than a dozen people, with none but Arbuckle being famous. But by the time the papers were through retelling the story, there were rumors about cocaine, narcotics, and A-list guests. Philadelphia's evening public ledger claimed there was a secret Hollywood fraternity called the Live Hundred that routinely held celebrity orgies.
0: The newspapers delivered the American public a new version of Arbuckle. Not the benign film star, but a grotesque symbol of Hollywood excess. It almost didn't matter what happened to him at trial. Fatty Arbuckle would forever be a name steeped in the worst kind of infamy.
1: On September 28th, Judge Sylvan Lazarus held a preliminary hearing to determine whether or not there was enough evidence to charge Arbuckle with murder. He decided there wasn't. But in perhaps one of the most bizarre rulings in all of criminal law, he declared, I do not find any evidence that Mr. Arbuckle either committed or attempted to commit rape. But we are not trying Roscoe Arbuckle alone. We are trying our present-day morals. I have decided to make a holding on the ground of manslaughter.
0: Translation, there's no evidence for either sexual assault or murder. However, to make an example of Arbuckle and highlight the immorality of present society, I'll allow him to be tried for manslaughter.
1: While this conclusion likely wouldn't be permitted today, people were so angry at Arbuckle, they were willing to accept it.
0: So, with Judge Lazarus' blessing, a manslaughter trial was scheduled for November. DA Brady wasn't pleased about not getting his murder charges, and there was more bad news for him just around the corner. He soon learned about Maude Delmont's disturbing telegrams, in which she referred to Rapé's fatal illness as an opportunity to make some money. After looking into her background further, Brady discovered her alias, Madam Black and that she had a history of blackmail and extortion.
1: It was abundantly clear that the prosecution's supposed star witness wouldn't hold up to cross-examination. If Brady wanted Arbuckle convicted, he needed a different strategy.
0: Well, let's pause here to acknowledge one of the strangest things about this story. Though Maud Delmont's telegrams show she intended to blackmail Roscoe Arbuckle, she seemingly never did. Perhaps there's a piece of the story that was successfully kept secret all these years, or maybe Arbuckle turned himself in so soon and stayed in jail so long she missed her opportunity.
1: By the time the manslaughter trial began, on November 14, 1921, Arbuckle had hired yet another attorney, Gavin McNabb. Though competent, he was a further drain on Arbuckle's finances, which were already on life support.
0: D.A. Brady was hamstrung by not being able to call Maud Delmont. In her stead, he relied on one of the two chorus girls at the party, Ms. Z. Prevost. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to tell a story nearly as salacious as Delmont's, so most of the prosecution's case was based on flimsy evidence. Some fingerprints on the doorframe, and those three words on the second autopsy report. Some external force.
1: The defense, on the other hand, came out swinging. McNabb introduced evidence that Repay had a chronic medical condition that could have caused her bladder to rupture spontaneously. He also called her doctors to testify she hadn't complained to them about being assaulted, and Arbuckle testified convincingly in his own defense.
0: As the world waited for the jury's verdict, it seemed clear to those in the courtroom that the defense did the better job of trying their case. Even the newspapers were changing their tune after hearing the evidence, with a UP Wire story on December 2nd declaring, it is considered a foregone conclusion that Arbuckle will be acquitted.
1: After 44 hours of deliberation, the jury returned on December 4th with no verdict. Ten jurors were voting for acquittal, but two stubbornly insisted on voting for conviction.
0: The judge was forced to declare a mistrial. This meant more months of uncertainty and mounting legal fees for Arbuckle, not to mention his name lingering in the headlines for months to come.
1: On January 11, 1922, the second trial began. This one went even better for the defense, The chorus girl, Zee Prevost, admitted under cross-examination that she'd been pressured to lie by D.A. Brady. With the prosecution's main witness admitting to perjury and Maude Delmont still out of sight, the defense got so cocky they didn't even call Arbuckle to testify. McNabb even waived the right to make a closing statement to the jury.
0: Big mistake. On February 3rd, the new jury again returned deadlocked, this time 10 to 2 in favor of conviction. So yet another trial was scheduled, leaving Arbuckle to Ogle at his legal fees. He was deeply in debt to the tune of $700,000, worth nearly $11 million today.
1: The third and final trial kicked off on March 16, 1922, eight days before Arbuckle's 35th birthday. This time, Arbuckle ordered his lawyers to be as aggressive as possible. McNabb was in rare form as he dubbed Maud Delmont, quote, the complaining witness that never witnessed.
0: By this time, Z. Prevost had left the state so as not to have to testify in the third trial. The prosecution was left with nothing but the one autopsy report saying Rapay's bladder was ruptured by some
1: external force. On April 12th, after making an impassioned closing statement, the defense rested and the jury began to deliberate. They returned after only five minutes with a unanimous vote to acquit.
0: Not only did they clear Roscoe Arbuckle of wrongdoing, the jury wrote him a note of apology, reading in part, "'Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women who have sat listening for 31 days to evidence that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame.'"
1: A stunned Arbuckle posed for photos with the jury. He almost couldn't believe it. After a seven-month ordeal and three trials, he was a free man.
0: A free, poor man. The legal fees meant a fire sale of his mansions and custom cars. And on April 18, 1922, six days after the acquittal, Arbuckle was banned from ever working in movies again.
1: This order came down from Will H. Hayes, head of the Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors of America Censorship Board. He later created the infamous Hayes Code, which limited creative expression in film for decades.
0: While Will Hayes would eventually have a change of heart and lift Arbuckle's ban that December, the decision was too late. Arbuckle had come to symbolize to the public a sinful era of silent film, which Hollywood preferred to forget. Talented or not, he stayed unemployed.
1: Banned from his industry, a pariah in public, and nearly penniless, Arbuckle slunk off to lick his wounds at a tiny Hollywood bungalow. Even though he'd promised his wife he'd put liquor aside permanently, that oath was broken before long. She divorced him two years later in 1924.
0: Arbuckle would go on to remarry twice more within seven years, both times to younger women. He tried his shot at directing, too, under the pseudonym William B. Goodrich, a pun on will be good, but he was said to be so depressed his assistants had to do most of the work.
1: In the early 1930s, Arbuckle briefly staged an acting comeback. He made multiple successful short films, and on June 29th of 1933, he was cast as the star of an upcoming Warner Brothers feature. He went out drinking to celebrate both his new contract and his first wedding anniversary. He felt like his fortunes might finally be changing. Perhaps the world was really ready to love him again.
0: He never got to find out. That same night, he suffered a massive heart attack in his sleep and died painlessly at age 46. Very few of his films outlived him. In fact, most of them were completely lost to history, and the few prints that have been preserved are mostly poor-quality copies.
1: Arbuckle was one of the most prolific actors of his generation. After making more than 150 movies, he probably thought his legacy in cinema was secure, only to lose it entirely because of a false accusation.
0: The case of Roscoe Arbuckle is tragic from every perspective. A young woman died without proper medical attention. The memory of her own life and creative work was forever overshadowed by a lie about her death and by the time arbuckle was finally acquitted it was too late for either his career or his health to recover
1: arbuckle came to symbolize the sins of 1920s hollywood to turn him into that symbol the public stripped him of his humanity leading to his impoverishment and early death If we can learn anything from this story, perhaps it's that under every veneer of fame, there lies a real and vulnerable human being, all too easily destroyed by the same audiences that made them famous.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Falls from Grace. We'll be back next week with new episodes on two writers who, like Fatty Arbuckle, were blackballed due to a moral panic. Oscar Wilde and Dalton Trumbo.
1: You can find more episodes of Falls from Grace and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another story of remarkable success and even more remarkable downfall.
0: Falls from Grace was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of *Falls from Grace* was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.